word that I would uh, be focused, that I would be uh, awake, that I would be energized, that I would speak in harmony with your spirit, Lord. I pray for your, uh, your grace on me as I unpack your word, as I look for the treasures in it to display for these folks that they might see your glory and know your son more. I pray for the folks who are here that they might uh, be people who um, have hearts that are ready to hear the word, that they would know you more, that they would um, become more and more the church, that they would become more and more the body of Christ, that they would become more and more refined and prepared for eternity. Um, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I have a video clip this morning I'm going to start with. And it's a bit of an oddball, and I'm going to explain to you why we're starting with it. Um, there's a concept in the text today uh, that, like, is there. It is unavoidable. Um, it relates to the ancient practice of patronage. Okay? And the, in the first century, you have a version of it that is really dominant uh, and maybe sometimes really corrupt. Uh, but if you go backward... There's another version of it, and you go forward all the way up to now, actually. There are versions of this patronage thing. And as I talked to different scholars and smart people and researched, I came across references to this movie scene so many times. I said, well, this is where we'll start. This is a, it's about three minutes. This is a clip from a, uh, a film called The Godfather. Uh, what, what's happening in this scene, um, this is the very beginning of the movie, okay? Um, and in the very beginning of the film, the uh, Don Carleone, the godfather, his daughter, his only daughter, is getting married. And it is his practice, it is the practice since centuries and centuries gone by to, like, for the godfather, for the person in power, to give out gifts on special occasions. And this, being his daughter's wedding, is the most special of occasions. And as he is there, um, he is meeting with people who are asking for favors. This particular gentleman, his daughter was attacked and beat up really badly. And he goes and he tries to hire the mafia to murder the young man who did this. And uh, this is the response, okay? So uh, it's like three minutes it up a little. Oh, wow, there's no volume coming out anywhere. It's not coming out of the sound system. Can you guys hear it? Good trade, man, good living. Please protect the general courts of law. He didn't need a friend like that. But uh, now you come to me and you say, I'm Corleone and give me justice. 
You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. You said you'd come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me for the murder. Money. I ask you for justice. That is not justice. Your daughter's still alive. Maybe it's a suffer then. She suffers. How much shall I pay you? against showing a godfather scene uh i i went with this for a very specific reason because the whole mafia thing anybody watch these kinds of movies i love these kinds of movies right but like the mafia thing came about as a result of ancient roman patronage and the idea was powerful people right rich people people with influence politicians and so forth would have people who were their clients and they would pay those people and provide for their needs and protect them. And in exchange, it was understood that I protect you and you're on my team if I ever need you. Now, when we get to this era, right, it's turned into something very different. He doesn't do murder for hire. He makes friends. And if you're my friend, then I'll take care of this problem for you. But it's the sort of friend that you make and you really wish you hadn't. Does that make sense? Like, these are not guys you want to be friends with. These are not guys that you want to be indebted to. But as we talk about friendship in terms of the world, our minds drift to what I owe. Anybody do this? Where, like, you need help with something, and the first thing you think is, who can I ask that owes me a couple of favors? Anybody? Anybody ever really need help with something or find themselves in a position where they are really struggling and, they, and like, you don't, ask anyone because you don't want to be indebted to them or you don't want to be put them out or you don't want to be the person who is like weak in the relationship or like you you don't want to inconvenience them anybody ever do that like it's kind of our culture that we trade favors and we trade you know you help me move and i'll feed you pizza later or whatever or you know i'll be there when you need to move or i'll be there when this happens um in the ancient world, this is the way that, like in Rome specifically, this is the way the whole country worked. If you were a wealthy person, you paid people 
a salary. And Paul actually refers to this practice in one of his letters because somebody in this group, like in one of the churches, was a, was a client to a patron. And that person didn't work and like because they were a client. They didn't have to. They offered support. Like they might, it might be necessary to show up and riot one day. Uh, some of the client, or folks that Paul like was rioted and, and lynched by, like those were people who were clients to a patron. And it was a whole system where you traded comfort and material possession for this relationship. And our world has not drifted very far from that. Politicians take care of their friends, right? Um, now, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? In Ecclesiastes, we're looking at this idea of living in community with other people. We have this whole section on work, right, and how work can isolate you if you allow it to get out of control. And once it has gotten out of control, once it has dominated your life, it tends to drive other people away, and, and you end up alone. And what Solomon talks about in this little poem, we're sort of beating absolutely to death, um, is he talks about this idea that, Life is better if it's lived in community. And the reason that that is is because we're made to be in community. We're made to be like, like in relationships with each other. The church is designed to be the body of Christ, right? Which, by the way, part of that body of Christ understanding is rooted in ancient patronism. Like I, this is a whole thing I just learned about this week, which is crazy to me, um, that it's this huge thing. And I didn't understand it until now. Anyway, so we're going to dive into this, and we're going to look at the idea of friendship um, and we're going to talk about this, you owe me, I owe you. Everybody with me? Everybody still awake? Good. Um, no answers. I assume men everybody was asleep. Uh, this is Ecclesiastes 4, 10 to 12. This is just the section that we're doing. He has said, um, two are better than one, for they get a better return for their work. And then he says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is a text that has uh, become almost universally associated with marriage. That is correct. However, that's not really what it's about. In a sense, it is because marriage is like the closest, most intimate, most like connected relationship you're supposed to have in life. But that's not all he's talking about. And in fact, actually, if we look at the context, there's probably something else going on here. We're only looking at the middle verse. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Part of the idea behind this, the whole little section here is about traveling so if you were traveling for business and you were in the desert and night comes, it gets really, really, really cold, right? It's like Montana. It can be 100 degrees, but it's going to get to be about 40 overnight. And so what you would do at this time, there were no hotels to check into or anything like that, you would pile up and sleep in a pile, right? And actually, it's funny, I, almost every commentary I read said that modern men would tend to laugh at this idea, right? Like, we don't spoon with each other when it's cold. We don't do that. Except that most of the time, we don't freeze to death if we don't. Is everybody with me? Because, like, you could. Like, you're more likely to die of exposure in the wilderness than you are to be eaten by an animal. And so these guys, like, this is a very different culture. It was a very different world. They would sleep 
in piles to stay warm. And it is probably the case that Solomon, who is an old man when he is writing this, is looking back on his life and thinking about his father. Because in 1 Kings, we see where David is a very old man. When David, or when King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. And the idea being that like he was, he's really old, his blood had gotten thin, he cannot stay warm no matter what. And so they find a young woman to basically like lay in bed with him and keep him warm because nothing is helping anymore. And I'm betting that young Solomon, before he became king, looked at his dad and said, wow, that is a place to be. My father was the terror of the region, right? His exploits at war were unbelievable. And now he's reduced to this. He needs, he needs a, you know, a teenage girl to curl up with him or he freezes. Like, he can't take care of himself. But at this point, Solomon is also really old. And his blood is probably getting thin. And he's probably facing the same thing. And he's looking at life and he's saying, wow, what a terrible thing it would be to live your life alone. And to reach this stage where you are old and have no one who loves you. No one who cares enough to watch out for you or to comfort you or to keep you warm at night. And those people are around us all the time. There are people who are forgotten and abandoned, and that is awful. It is a tragic, heartbreaking thing when that actually happens. The other thing that he's probably thinking about in relation to his father, and this is not really, it's sort of a marriage thing, right? Like because David probably, they probably had a marriage ceremony, but the implication here is that David is not like, He's, he's basically, he needed somebody to lay down next to him. He's not, there ain't anything else happened. Like, he just needed somebody to keep him warm. Um, the other half of this, as he's thinking about it, he understood, because his father was huge. His father was an enormous personality. He was everywhere. He was a war hero. He was a poet. He was, like, a profoundly righteous man before God. He was, he was everything every man desired to be at the time. And... In that process, if you go back and you read David's life, David had profoundly intimate relationships with everyone. He was a man of passion and energy. And when he had friends, he had friends who would die for him. He actually had one friend, or a couple of guys he was friends with amongst his mighty men. They were encamped outside of Jerusalem, and they say, he says, man... I would give anything to drink some water from such and such well outside of the city. And two of his men crept out in the dark through enemy lines, got him water from the well, and brought it back to him because they're like, we love you so much, we brought you this water. And he's like, do you understand a figure of speech, buddy? Had you died, that would have been a problem. And then I'm sure he said, thank you, because those guys loved him enough to do anything for him. Right? Does anybody have friends like that? Friends that you know... At the drop of a hat, they would be in your living room now. Two in the morning, holiday, weekend, whatever. Like friends who you're in the hospital with your kid and you call them and they show up to sit with you and pray with you. Like to live life in that sort of union is how we're designed, where we're designed to be connected to each other no matter what, like in intimate, personal, huge ways. And actually... Um, one of the Psalms, Psalm 133, is about this. Um, David writing, 
Um, and this is probably a war psalm, okay? I'm going to tell you the stuff I read around this indicates it's probably a war psalm. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now watch this. What's going on here is um, he's saying, listen, it is an amazing thing to live in unity, in closeness, in community with other people. So much so that you can always go to them or they were always there for you or they worry about you and care for you and, and would run out and take care of you no matter what. It is not the world's idea of friendship, right? You do it for me, I do it for you. You know, hey, we're friends now, and one day I'm going to ask a favor, and you're going to do my favor. And it's a terrifying thing. Oh, I can't ask him. I've asked too much of that person. I don't want them to think I'm that kind of guy, right? It's funny, in the church we find that people are very willing to drop everything and help the guy next to him, but nobody wants to ask for help. Isn't that crazy? How do you help people if nobody is willing to ask for it? And part of the deal with relationship, with close, intimate friendship, and in particular this sort of war setting like he's talking, um, is you need the people around you to survive. Right? You need the people around you to pick you up and carry you. So one of the things I learned from sabbatical, I, had, uh, I was struggling. I was tired, and I had, like, was kind of on the outer edge of burnout, and I had been depressed for weeks, and I had trouble getting up in the morning. And my wife was getting upset with me because I was so, like, blah all the time. And I finally, after, like, two months, I talked to the board about it, and I said, look, guys, I know I should have had this conversation with you before, but, like, I'm supposed to be the pastor here. And this is where I work, and I'm talking to my bosses right now that I've been depressed for a while, and I'm tired, and I'm exhausted, and a little burnout. And I didn't want you to know that I needed help. Isn't that crazy? But I'm also a brother in Christ. Huh. But we don't want to ask. Why? Because then you're vulnerable. Then you're acknowledging that you're not perfect. And it's a thing that crushes the church. It breaks the church. It divides the church. And it empties us of the best gift that we get from God. And actually, when he uses all these, like, oil from above, like dew, where does dew come from, guys? Pretty much from the air, right? You go back a few years, and, like, nobody knows where dew comes from. It's just there when you wake up in the morning, right? Um, That dew was considered to be a thing that God gave them. And ultimately, these close relationships... They're designed, they are like the way we are meant to be, like they're designed into us, and those close relationships are a gift from God. I was sitting in Jeremy Erie's brand new living room, and I watched as my wife and several other of the the moms sat around and laughed and talked, and I watched them and I thought, man, that's awesome. You ever have a brother or sister in Christ that you talk to and they just like, they know you and they love you. And like, even they know you're like garbage and they still love you. Right. That is the church. That is the body of Christ. That is what we're meant to be. That's actually why we're supposed to confess our sins so that nobody can stand up and say, Hey, I'm better than you. You know, if you know that I'm 
an awful person. I can't say that. I can't pretend to be better than you. I can only be who I am in Christ. And so Solomon knew his father. He knew his father ended his life in need of other people, even though he was the strongest, toughest, mightiest, most heroic. And he knew that his father father valued these friendships, these intimate, close connections that he had. Um, So we're going to go on. Like, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, family in Christ, part of your job is to be God's voice, and his hands and his arms in our coldest, darkest moments. I, one of the biggest blessings in being a pastor, and I always feel weird saying this, is doing funerals. Um, not because I like doing funerals. Not because I like being around people who cry. Not because I like, you know, honestly, I don't think I've ever done a funeral where I didn't have to, like, sort of grip my teeth real hard to not, like, choke up myself. Like, I always kind of, I'm a big baby. I get a little emotional about everything. And... Um, but like when you're there and you watch family bind together and pray together and people who haven't talked in years coming together to weep over the loss of a family member or you see the community gather up and stand together for someone or actually this was uh, if you drive by like right down downtown right down that dirt road that's on Main Street um, past uh, Peps in the parking lot there's a big picture. Right. And like uh, that, that picture is of a harvest that was done when Rusty had cancer and like every he's dying. He couldn't work. Nobody wanted to work. Nobody wanted. I mean, like there's this harvest and you're watching the last days and every neighbor pulled into their field with their combines and cut for them. And the photos are like I, I'm always in awe when I see the picture. I've got one hanging up in my office as a reminder. But like that is. That's being God's, God's voice, God's hands in that moment. And you all ever had somebody who stepped into your life at exactly the right moment and said the right thing, and it was like God was speaking to you? If we are vessels of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is living in us, if Christ is set up within us, if we are built into a temple, like the, the stones built into a temple like Peter talks about, and we're unified as a thing that worships God, then we carry Christ to each other when we're cold, right? It's not curling up on the ground on a, on a desert cold night, but I'm going to tell you, having somebody who will answer the phone for you when you're hurt, oh, it's about as good, isn't it? When you feel hopeless, when you feel like you're as unlovable as you're going to get, when you feel lost, when you feel scared, knowing that there's a body of Christ around you is amazing. I got two real quick verses. Uh, I might skip over, actually. Um, Paul, uh, well, we'll do this real quick. This is in Philippi. Paul is in jail, and uh, they've been beaten publicly. They're in stocks, which was actually a form of torture in the ancient world. They would lock you into a funny position, and after several hours, your back muscles would start to spasm, and it was an incredibly uncomfortable thing to be in prison, to have been whipped, and not to have had their wounds tended, and to be locked down into an uncomfortable like awkward position, they, they would have been, muscles would have been screaming. And instead of griping about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Right? They're praying and they're singing together. My slide jumped, didn't it? Um, 
and they're offering each other comfort. Uh, the next little section, you can look it up yourself. This is uh, Philippians 1. If you read through Philippians 1, he's writing back to this community where he has been in jail. And as he is writing to him, he's saying, listen, I'm in chains. I know that God is like going to work through the chains that I'm stuck in, but I am constantly overjoyed when I think about you guys. I am thankful to God when I think about the things that he is doing in your life. And Paul derives comfort from the knowledge that these people are doing well. And they send him people to take care of him and to feed him. They, they like watch over him while he's in prison because Paul can't do it himself. All of us face times like that. But for us today, it's not, oh, I'm in jail for my faith. It's, I'm struggling with my temptation, but I have to struggle alone or I have to tell people that I'm struggling. And that's not how we are. That's not what Gary Cooper would do. It's not what John Wayne would do. I've been working in ministry for 25 years, and I will tell you that the overriding truth I have discovered in relation to men specifically in our culture is um, most men carry around an enormous weight of loneliness. And they can't do anything about it because that's not what Clint Eastwood would do. We wouldn't spoon in the desert. Clint Eastwood would set the desert on fire. He radiated his own heat. The truth is that we are designed to radiate heat that comes from the love of Christ in us. We're designed to radiate like warmth that comes out of Jesus living in our hearts. And so when we deal with each other, when we love each other, when we care for each other, when we pick each other up after we've fallen, Christ is what does it. And so, like, in order to experience true friendship in Christ, in order, like, what this looks like is, first off, we're not expected. Like, like our relationship with Christ himself is the model. Everybody with me? Like, and we are not expected to earn it. And actually, the Bible says you can't earn it. When you were an enemy of God, when you were at your worst, Christ died for you. Um, one might conceivably die for a good man, but for a wicked man, never. And when we were at our worst, Christ died for us. He buys us with his blood. We become friends with him, but not Don Corleone friends, right? Not, all right, putting a foot on you and you're in trouble now. There's so much contrast in this and the ancient pagan religions, it is hard to put it to words. In the ancient pagan worlds, you gave things to the gods because... Otherwise, they would probably kill you. When Paul talked about the altar to the unknown God, that was hedging your bets because if there was a God you didn't know about and you didn't sacrifice to that God, he might destroy your city. So, like, like having a relationship with God amongst the ancient pagans was a lot like Don Corleone. We are bought by Christ. We are his friends. We are his servants. We belong to him. We, he is our patron. We are his clients. But we aren't slaves. We're brothers. And actually, um, Paul talks, or Jesus talks about this in uh, John 14. 
Um, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may, may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Um, Jesus is about to lay down his life for his friends. He is about to buy them up out of sin, out of death. He is about to redeem them. And then he says, listen, in order to be in this relationship with me, in order to be my friends, you just have to follow me. You have to obey my commands. Well, wait a minute. Obey your commands? That sounds like Don Corleone stuff. No, I want you to love each other. And I want you to love me. And I want you to obey my commands to be the person God made you to be. Wow. And if you mess up, I'll squish you. No. If you mess up and you come back, it's like the first day. Everything forgiven. Everything taken away. Actually, if you follow Paul's argument... The moment you step into Christ, you are forgiven for every sin you have ever committed, every sin you are currently committing, and every sin you will ever commit. We are free from fear. We are free from the law as a way of earning love. We are friends with Christ because we are who we are. And this is the way the church is meant to operate. Because Christ loves me, I love you. What if I'm horrible? I'm horrible a lot, and you all know me. You've known me for years. I, I often blow it, or I do the wrong thing, or I say the wrong thing, or I don't say the right thing in the right time, and I'm always grateful that people love me anyway because this is what the body of Christ is meant to be. We don't owe him. We are his. We belong to him. He is our patron. We are his clients. He has bought us up, and we are family. Um, We aren't his slaves, by the way. We're his friends. Because he goes on to say this. He says, obey my commands. And then he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I want to say that again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now, I'm going to unpack this real quick. The ancient Jews, they understood this. Like, And actually, John in particular is writing to a Hellenized Greek audience. So these were like people who like lived this culture. Everybody with me? They understood patronage. And he's saying, listen, I am your patron and I will die for you. Number one, patrons never died for their clients. That sort of breaks the system, right? If you die for them, then you get nothing out of it. But Christ is a better patron. He is a better, like, purchaser of our sins. He is a better master because he dies for us. And then after that, he says, listen, as my clients, as my people, you're not servants. And actually, the word he uses there, servants, is doulos. It means slave. Um, You are not my slaves. You are my friends. And so in Christ, we are bought And then we're called live this way. That is the trade-off. Like that's how we're called to live because we have been bought. This is the new life we're given. And that new life is love God, love each other. And that's it. Bear fruit in keeping with it. What does that mean? Bearing fruit in keeping with it means loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means telling people about Jesus. Right? 
And, you know, I know that sounds really, you know, like sticky and weird. But in truth, if you look at the folks around you who are dying for meaning in their life, or pursuing one fad after another, or who are living their life for pink drink or, or, or some hobby they've taken on this year or, or, you know, whatever, like, or money in the case of Ecclesiastes. Um, those people are, they're searching for water in a world that is a desert. And the comfort we can offer, the friendship we can offer, the way we keep them warm is to give them Jesus. It warms them from the inside out. It makes them new. Not only that, we aren't just friends, we're family. Um, There's another line from John, and this would have been so scandalous at the time, because patronage, if you go backward into Jewish culture, involved family. You, as a son, owed your father, you as a daughter, you as a child, owed your parents honor. And if you ever failed in that honor, you failed entirely. So if my dad said, go do this, and I blew it off, I dishonored my father, and I basically threw myself out of my relationship with him. It was considered the most like humiliating, awful thing I could do to him to, to treat him or to disobey him. And what Jesus says here, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers, or his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my brothers, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So not only are we friends, not only are we bought up, not only are we in a relationship where we know he has us watched. We're family. Right? It's a line from the beginning of Goodfellows where he talks about you got family. And in reality, as you watch the film, you realize they don't have family. they got people who take advantage of the situation for their own selves. We have family. In Christ, we are adopted. We are made new. So what do we do with this? So you are adopted in your job. You are a, a, a client of Christ. You are bought. You are his servant. You are his brother. You are his friend. What are you to do with that? Well, you are to obey him and carry that love with you. Well, how do I know if I'm doing that? I'm going to tell you, I came across a really cool idea while researching this. Now, watch this. This is uh, like the idea here is we bring Jesus everywhere we go. Everybody with me? So if you go to the store, Jesus goes with you. If you go to the neighbor's house, Jesus goes with you. If you go home and spend time with your wife and kids, who goes with you? Wow, nobody's awake. (laughs) And I'm only like two minutes past 12, and I've already put you to sleep. Um, Christ goes with us everywhere. That means that what we bring will either look like Christ or not. Now, to illustrate this, I found a great line in Proverbs. This one is about marriage, but there's a bit of wisdom behind it that we can apply to everything. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Now, to give you a little context, when it rained, in, when it, John can tell you about this, when it rains in that part of the world, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it floods. It rains like buckets of water being poured down. It rains like a farmer's dream. You all with me? 
and they live in earthen homes, and their roofs leaked because it hardly ever rained, and so there's dripping, and it's cold, and it's uncomfortable, and it's unpleasant. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to marry someone, and you marry someone who's quarrelsome, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be living every day with water leaking in the roof, driving you nuts, and making you feel cold in your own home. Now, if we take that away from wife and we say, like a continual dripping on a rainy day, or a continual dripping on a rainy day, and a man who does not bring the love of Christ, they're alike. Because that guy's going to judge you. That guy's going to mistreat you. That guy's going to trip you up. That guy is going to look for advantage and say, hey, you owe me a favor. Right? That is Don Corleone as a friend. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Now, my throat's dry. In the ancient world, you did everything with your right hand. So if you went to the store, you paid with your right hand, you took your stuff with your right hand. There are lots of reasons for that. We're not going to get into it. If you have oil, the word there, oil, should be translated perfume. So if I were to get some Axe body spray from Jeremy's cabinet, and I were to spray it in my hand and keep my hand closed because I don't want to smell bad like a teenage boy. Is it going to work? Not at all. Because you can't grip perfume in your hand any more than you can grip wind in your hand. And so if you are this kind of person, everywhere you go, you're going to bring a stink with you. Right? You're going to bring a stink into your friendships, into your workplace, into your marriage, into your interactions with your kids. And I'll say, I do this sometimes. This is a man who carries something that is not Christ's love in them. This is the, I'll be your friend as long as I can get something out of it. I'll be your friend as long as you act the way I want you to, as long as you agree with my Facebook rants or whatever, as long as you don't ask too personal questions or call me on it when I do the wrong thing. Everybody's going to know you don't look like Jesus. Why? Because they can smell it on you. And since you have to use your right hand for everything, meaning when you use your right hand, it's a little like us using, the, using Christ in everything in our lives, they're going to see this guy ain't like Jesus. We're going to jump ahead. This is the week that Christ like, like, is about to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at his table. And so this um, would have been like the, oftentimes it's translated pure nard. It is the most expensive perfume cologne thing you can buy, and it is strong. You know the difference between cheap and expensive cologne? Like, cheap cologne doesn't smell very long, right? Expensive cologne, it hangs, right? And it smells good. You ever walk through the grocery store and smell somebody who smells good, and it sort of makes you want to, like, detour a little bit to figure out, like, who it is and what's going on? I do that. I'm weird. I know. Uh, I <laughs> so Jesus is there. Then he pours this oil over his hair and into his beard, and it would have dripped down on his clothes. And then Jesus walks into Jerusalem, surrounded by Pharisees and Sadducees and hateful men and people who treat God like, like he's their personal bully. He's their personal Don Corleone. I follow him, therefore I can do what I want. You can't touch me because I'm a made man. Um, 
and amongst these people who are carrying in their right hand the stench of wickedness. Christ stood there, and number one in this room, and then everywhere he went, it would have been an oppressive, beautiful smell. When my kids got up this morning, the house smelled like? Are they not here? Wow. My house is going to smell like brisket for the next month. You know why? Because I cooked a lot of barbecue last night. My house smells like barbecue. You can't go anywhere near my house and smell it and say, oh, it, you know, it smells like barbecue. Everything smells like barbecue. Everywhere I go, usually, for days after I cook a brisket, I smell like brisket. Everywhere Jesus went, he smelled beautiful. And the heart he brought into those situations, the words he spoke, the actions he took, the interactions he offered up were such an amazing contrast that like nobody could stand before it. And the crowds didn't know what it smelled like, but they wanted more of it. That is what it means to be a brother like Christ. When you walk in the room, the people look at you and say, I don't know what that guy has, but I want it. I don't know what that guy is doing but I love talking to him because he makes my life better. I don't know what that guy has going on, but I know if I call him, he'll show up, right? This is what we're called to be. When Solomon talks about brothers, friendship, community, closeness, and he says they keep each other warm at night, we don't have to worry about freezing to death today. What we do have to worry about is freezing in our chests. Our hearts grow cold And we die spiritually all the time. And the trick to that, to overcoming it, is to carry that warmth, that beautiful aroma of Christ everywhere you go. I got a last video clip as a contrast. So we had Don Corleone talking to this guy, right? And the guy's scared because he doesn't want to be friends with Don Corleone. You don't want to be friends with a guy like that. This is from a series called Band of Brothers. Have any of y'all seen this? This is a... Uh, an airborne unit. This is one of the last bits. And this is one of the soldiers that we followed through his tour in Europe, through the Battle of the Bulge, surrounded by men that he would die for, men that he would, like, like risk his life for. Sorry. She jumped the gun on me. She's like, hurry up, get to it. From this day to the ending of the world, we in it shall be remembered. We lucky few, we band of brothers. For he who today sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Um, One of the things that I've heard from soldiers over and over again is that living and risking their lives and sharing in the hardship bound them together to these other men and made them brothers. We, as the body of Christ, as we stand with each other, there's a weird thing to look around into a room and say, I am going to be pastor here when I do so-and-so's funeral, even though they're my friend. I've done that at least once, or I've actually several times now, where I knew someone, I knew they were dying, I loved them dearly, and I did their funeral. And I was closer to them at the end and to their families than most of the friends that I thought were inseparable to me. Because Christ binds us together. We stand in the trenches and we live our lives together. 
when we show up and help each other move, when we show up and help each other when we're hurting, when we reach out and say, hey, I love you, I see this, let's talk about it. When we lift each other up, when we just sit and talk scripture together and pray together and find out what we need to pray for in each other, it makes us brother. And we carry this scent. This world is dying. This world is dying without Christ. It is cold. We live in the winter. I mean, winter is not coming. Winter is here. We live in a cold time, in a cold place. And our job, brothers and sisters, is to offer warmth. To offer the love of Christ. To carry it with you so everybody smells it. And they want it. I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to challenge you. As we get guests coming in today, be Jesus to those people. As you walk out of this place and you see your neighbor and you think, man, he is always depressed or he is always angry. Love that guy. Pray for him. Pray for the people who kick you off or hurt your feelings. When your spouse yells at you tomorrow, turn around and say something loving to him or pray with them or for them. See what it does. Don't be the stink in the room. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us. I pray that you be with the folks who are here. I pray that we would be bound together as a bound, band of brothers, as a, as a community, as the body of Christ, and that like you who saved us and just commanded us to follow your will and to, to love each other, that we would live that out. And in the desert, in the cold, in the misery of this world, help us to offer warmth. Help us to not feel silly about it. Help us not to, to feel uncomfortable. Help us to step over that, that fear of being vulnerable with each other and just love one another like Christ loved us. Amen.